Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, our tech panel reviews Cyber Monday and discusses what it means if Apple actually is a monopoly and has a monopoly through its App Store. But first, the economic potential of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. You're listening to BIV Today. The Union of BC Indian Chiefs, along with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, have today released a report on true lasting reconciliation. It looks at how far BC has come in implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in BC law, policies and practices. On the line with me today is Chief Judy Wilson, Secretary-Treasurer of the UBCIC. She joins me today to discuss the report's findings, as well as the greater impact and importance of the UN Declaration. Chief Judy, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, Thank you. I think a lot of times the UN Declaration is referenced, particularly in BC and Canada, with regard to resource development and particularly free, prior, and informed consent. But of course, it's much, much more than that. Can you maybe tell our audience what the UN Declaration means in full and and its implementation? What does that involve? Well, the... uh UN Declaration is largely uh, human rights standards, the Miminal standards, and in across the uh, you know worldwide, it's been you know the the standard, and it's been used in many many countries. And the UN's been working on it for a long long time. And here in Canada, we both had the federal government and the provincial government now endorsing it, so we're shifting into another uh, era of reconciliation, if you want to call it that. Uh, but most importantly, I think with the uh, human rights uh, standards and, you know, especially towards Indigenous people who are largely on the lower bottom of the uh, well-being index in Canada, you know, as top third, fourth uh, index, there's a large gap there. So what has to happen is, you know, with the implementation, you know, it's going to bring a lot more uh, standards. It's going to bring, bring a lot more, uh, you know, uh the free prior informed consent is going to bring, you know, the a better process for, for everyone in in the sense that, you know, it, the gray areas, uh, especially with the self-determination of the nations, the gray areas uh, that the government has kept clouded all, all of these years will be clearer in processes and in, in dealing with Indigenous uh, uh, title and rights and Indigenous people. So would it be fair to say then that full implementation of the UN Declaration, does that then provide a clearer framework for working together for pick any issue? It gives us a, a clearer starting point? Uh, absolutely. The, the uh, UN Declaration is the framework for that. And largely that's what the, the paper is talking about is the implementation of that framework in, in all areas, especially in the bureaucracy of government. Uh, give clearer processes and especially in in the economics area as well. What would be the greater economic impact of implementing this declaration? Well, the uh, I think uh, 
one thing that that uh, Canada and the province has always said they didn't have was certainty. Uh, certainty, not in the sense, you know, this is a one-sided uh, agreement. Uh, no, it's going to be, you know, more uh, level playing field now for Indigenous people, especially in the sense, you know, they have the free, prior, informed consent and self-determination, uh, you know, largely over their territorial lands. And I think it's really important that and there's a lot of fear-mongering with that, uh, but, you know, right now with the implementation, I think it's just give a clear process. I think most of the fears were the, you know, uncertainty of the landscape and uncertainty of, you know, how the uh, Indigenous town rights uh, are being dealt with. So with the UN declaration, that gives more a more clear process and definitely a frame, framework for that. You mentioned fear-mongering, and I know some of the concerns I've heard would be that full implementation gives certain nations a, a complete veto, or that some projects, that particularly in the resources area, could be side-railed, that there wouldn't be that certainty. What do you say to that? Because it sounds as though that's well, not exactly well, what this what this means. Well, um, I kind of I think that, you know, uh, Right now, do they mean veto that the government has only the veto? You know, is is that what they're meaning? Like that's the veto now that only the government has discretion, only the government has say. Uh, you know, because that's not, uh, 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 you know, what what the human rights standard is. The human rights standard is would be a better uh, process, and you know, the human rights would be respected. So, you know, I think uh, you know that's. Uh, kind of a lopsided view on, on uh, you know, veto, because I think we're trying to get away from these veto processes that only serve, you know, the, the 1% uh, of Canada and, and right now a better process for all of us uh, in regards to this uh, decision making and, you know, standards and policy, uh, I think is really important uh, that, that we do that. Yeah, it seems to make it more of a, a level playing field, if that's the way to put it. Yeah, a level playing field, but more clear uh, processes in and around that, because the problem is that the the governments uh, have always, uh, uh, you know, based a lot of the treaty processes on extinguishment. Again, that's, uh, you know, a one-sided process that only benefits uh, the government. Uh, and then um, I think with the jurisdiction and you know uh, the processes. It'll it'll give a, a way better process for everyone involved. Uh, not just uh, government or or one one percent of the industry. Mm-hmm. Now the the report, of course, looks at how far we've come in BC and Canada toward implementation at the near close of 2018. Where do we stand? How far have we come? Well, I think the the as the paper signals, uh, the the biggest part of the work is the implementation. Uh, and the education and awareness. Uh, what does that mean uh, to, you know, Canadians? Uh, what does that mean to BC? You know, and you know that you know it's a better standard. It's a better process for uh, Indigenous people, but for everyone. And uh, you know, it, it's time in this day and age now that you know both our, our country and our province uh, steps up to that, and that we can work start working on implementation and you know at, at all levels so it's from the community level to the regional province and the national level mm-hmm. and and where do you suggest let's say the province of bc start with that there's some key recommendations in the p- report maybe you can walk through what some of those are 
Well, I think the one thing I think that was uh, interesting was with the uh, with the province. You know, they they called the UN declaration foundational to the confidence and supply agreement between the NDP and BC Green Party. So that that's interesting. And then with the uh, cabinet approving the commitment document with the Indigenous people, uh, that that first item was the de- development of uh, reconciliation or UN declaration um, uh, uh, legislation, and uh, also, you know, you know how would that look like in BC, and you know what, how would we implement that if, at the different levels, you know, it, it being the most comprehensive universal instrument addressing human rights, uh, it, it needs to go into every level of government, every level. Of policy and legislation, but it's going to be what we make it, and uh, you know we we need to work at you know uh, how how that's going to be done. And I think the paper calls for you know specific uh, steps on on to on how we can do that. You know, shift from the you know uh, colonialism you know to to a true reconciliation uh, processes and understanding, but because that'll you know give all of us a future. Uh, you know, and especially with uh, First Nations, with their self-determination. Mm-hmm. And what are your expectations around how long it will take to get to a full, meaningful implementation of this? Well, I understand the province already started their reconciliation committee as one of the many committees they've uh, clarified. <laughs> so that's a lot of work with the reconciliation committee. Uh, most of all, it's a lot of us making sure it's in all the different uh, policy and legislation work that we've been doing. As you know, there's been unprecedented uh, legislative, uh, especially I think it's 11 or 13, uh, you know, involving uh, First Nations. So we were making sure that the UN declaration was wedged into each one of them. And then also, you know, this uh, uh, legislation that the province will be working on as well. Uh, It'll be similar to the uh, Bill 262 that Romeo Saganash introduced in the, uh, you know, in in Ottawa. So I think there's like a lot of work to be done, and you know, it, it's going to take us all. You mentioned the importance of the public education piece, and it's a theme in the report: the the need to continue to have discourse on this declaration and what it means and what reconciliation means for nations in British Columbia and Canada. What role do you think the broader business community can play when it comes to honoring the declaration and respecting the declaration? Well, it's really interesting because prior, I understand, you know, different organizations, they did, um, you know, uh, a consultation framework or consultation processes. I think the UN declaration will lend, you know, a, a better foundation for that now you know, for, for how they engage Indigenous people and do business with Indigenous people. And uh, I, I think, you know, that, that's going to change to provide a better economy for us all. And, uh, you know, there's also the, um, you know, the policies, uh, the uh, referrals policies, I'm thinking of that, you know, are outdated. Uh, you know, the consultation accommodation policies for BC definitely will change. And then, you know, also the uh, 
common rights policy for British Columbia, you know, it needs to be revisited, uh, you know, to, to bring in the new case law and the UN Declaration and the Constitution uh, 35 uh, as well, uh, right? So there's like a lot of work that needs to be done. It's just that there was a lot of, uh, um, I guess, not understanding and, you know, somebody waiting for somebody else to do it. Now, both levels of government are doing it and it'll help us move out, out of, you know, this history of Crown Indigenous conflict and, you know, addressing these historical wrongs, you know, to build a, a, a solid uh, or a stronger shared future for us. And it uh, will be a multi-pronged implementation strategy mm-hmm. uh, that's meaningful and workable and, you know, to bring that long-lasting change that we need. And, you know, BC's uh, doing a lot of that work, so we're, we're leading a lot of that work. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to do that because, uh, you know, the table is being set. And, uh, you know, it, it, for the first time, it's involving Indigenous people. And that's where the big uh, difference is, uh, you know, so we'll build on, you know, Bill C-262. And, uh, you know, that, that act has to be co-developed and co-drafted with Indigenous people. And also, uh, you know, the B.C. government, uh, they adopted an implementation action plan uh, to systematically review all BC laws, policies, and practice to ensure compliance with the UN Declaration. And also, um, I think one part I didn't say was the independent oversight and accountability to ensure the implementation of this action plan. So I think that's really important too, uh, you know, so, so it's not lopsided again. Uh, and a lot of the implementation uh, requires a focus, you know, on Indigenous self-determination. And uh, that means that it looks different in different places, and I think that should be all right. Um, and then the uh, efforts of governments and uh, industry and uh, business uh, cannot prescribe, define, or determine Indigenous peoples' own priorities. Nations uh, need to do that for themselves, and government must be uh, prepared to uh, appropriately resource the Indigenous people for their self-determination initiatives. And because uh, if you look at it, that's where the uh, the um, under-resourcing was in, in trying to do uh, business at all levels. So once we do have stronger nations and, you know, self-determining nations, uh, they're going to bring a lot of uh, business and knowledge uh, uh, to the table with the business sector and mm-hmm. uh, you know, forge a stronger economy for BC. Chief Judy Wilson has been my guest this morning. She's the Secretary Treasurer of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Chief Judy, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Okay, thank you. And if anyone's interested in looking at the report, it's out today and it's called True Lasting Reconciliation, Implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in British Columbia Law, Policy and Practices. Now it's time for our BIV tech panel. With me is Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Haley. First topic of the day, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, a whole shopping weekend. Did you buy anything? I did not. I actually went into a store and bought a few things this weekend. I couldn't do the online shopping. Five days of online retail madness. And this is from a person who shops online all year. I just couldn't hit 
I couldn't go into the online shopping carts for some reason. So you normally shop online. All but the time. on the holiday shopping time to do it online, you're not. And I meant to. And then I looked at the prices and I was like, yeah, I, I think it looked like there was about a 20% savings on technology and a 20% savings mm-hmm. on TVs and things. And I suppose I was being greedy thinking I needed like 60% off to hit the buy button. But I didn't find the pricing <laughs> on the things I would buy that intriguing. So I didn't bother with it. Better deals in person, do you think? I don't know if there were better deals in person. What I did find interesting is while all the records were shattered, Mm -hmm. only a 1% dip in visits to stores. So that, I thought that was a MasterCard stat, I think, or an Adobe stat. An interesting uh, 1% dip means that people are showrooming, right? So if we're going to be doing record-breaking sales online and still going into stores, people are using bricks-and-mortar stores to look at the clothes, look at the products, feel them, see them, try them on, and then they're buying online. I found that interesting. That's really interesting. I did the opposite. I shopped a little online, but I also perused online and then discovered that I could actually get on books. I went to Indigo in-store because they had better in-store deals, which I wonder if that's maybe a tactic too to get more foot traffic into the physical location. I don't know why stores would want much traffic in the physical location. I think these stores need to really beef up their technology so that the online piece works well. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the um, the bricks and mortar stores, like I said, are sort of showrooms that gives me incentive to explore other areas of these retail shops. But, you know, Cyber Monday is a big shopping day because everyone's just been battered by this in-store frenzy and the lineups and the craziness, <laughs> right? And and I think people are showing, signaling this season, they want to shop online. So Indigo, don't make me walk in there. Mm-hmm. Give me better deals online. It costs you less anyway. Um, and, and give me a different experience in your store. That's That's my curmudgeonly way of looking at walking into a store and shopping. <laughs> I do prefer online shopping, especially through Zara. That's my big online place. Well, it saves you from the lines and the madness and the not being able to find the right thing. Maybe it said it was in stock and maybe it's not actually in stock by the time you get there. I just learned there's the Amazon Turkey 5. So it's five days of deals and that smashed records. And Cyber Monday was their most successful online day and it beat Prime Day. It did beat Prime Day and that golden three hours. What is it? The between seven and 10 Pacific time. Yeah. Uh, 10 and one Eastern is when everybody's on their phones uh, just going for it. And and I like that the shopping starts. What, what are people saying? Basically, when the turkey starts digesting, everyone picks up their phone. <laughs> $2.2 billion in mobile sales That's amazing. during the Turkey 5 season. Um, so really incredible stats showing that uh, mobile is growing. Mm-hmm. Um and the big retailers doing well with mobile sales um, and smaller retails kind of stuck over on the website side. So not doing so well. Which gets back to your point about that tech experience online. I personally find it very frustrating if you're on your mobile device. The big players have this down pat. But if the website is not fit to your phone, if they don't have an app, Ex- it becomes very frustrating. Exactly. And now we're into this margin crunch for these smaller retailers. We're all expecting free shipping. Mm-hmm. Next day delivery or close to it. And those um, those services cut into margin in a big way. And the smaller retailers are getting hit hard by that. Do you think they, they'll find a market or a niche in sort of this movement of buying local? So even though maybe it doesn't come with free shipping, there's enough of a movement to maybe try and support the little guy online? Or does that not exist in the same way? I don't know that 
that exists in the same way. And I'm, I'm torn between supporting the local retailer and, and asking people, retailers, small or big, just make the online experience easier. I mm. want to support local, but I'm not going to overpay to do it. I don't necessarily like shopping on Amazon. I don't do it that often. I am always looking around uh, for deals and sales online. And, and our local retailers need to give me an excuse to do that. Mm-hmm. So it is a global world. I feel very much part of the global world. And that is maybe a anathema, a terrible thing to say as a BC person. But um, I need a good reason to shop local. Price matters. Yep. Yep. That's a good way of putting it. One of the stats, too, uh, through Amazon's mobile app, more than 4 million toys and electronics on Cyber Monday. It's a hey, lot. The collapse of Toys R Us has left a big hole in that market, yeah. right? So that's changed where people are going to shop this season. I found it interesting that Costco didn't do a good job of their uh, Turkey 5 mm. sales. They they missed the boat on shipping. They didn't weren't able to compete on key products. So that's interesting. A big retailer that should know better lost yeah. out to smarter players in that market. That's interesting. We'll see how that plays out because you can't really afford to miss year over year over year. It seems we can't. This is is this the start <laughs> to the Christmas shopping season, or did everybody just get everything bought and they're done with a bow wrapped on it? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'd like to live in that world. That so would, would be. I, I'm not in that <laughs> world. Stressful. Don't even have my list no, yet. <laughs> no. Well, speaking of apps, so there's a very interesting battle brewing between Apple and iPhone users. The U.S. Supreme Court will be weighing in on whether Apple's App Store is a monopoly and an unlawful monopoly at that. This has been in the works for nearly a decade. And ultimately, the court will determine whether Apple can be forced to pay damages to iPhone users who argue that its app store is an unlawful monopoly. What What do you think of this? Do you think that there's any merit to the idea that it could be a monopoly? Well, it's um, this is an appeal. So a lot of people think uh, there is merit to the case. We will find out. We'll either get a quick decision and it's over or we're heading into a years long battle to yeah. decide. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh's name is in the news again, mm-hmm. <laughs> this time for doing his job. Um, it's an interesting thing. Is Apple is the App Store a marketplace that delivers uh, apps to iPhone and iPad users, Apple users, and charges a thirty percent commission to do so, or are they um, dominating the pricing and gouging customers as a result? I think that's a very difficult line to draw, um, and you need to understand the technology and the way uh, the workflow is for the user, because who's who's the user here? Um, is it the developers? Are they allowed to bring the suit? That's um, what Apple is contending. Or can users bring the suit, the people like us who buy apps? And I think that fine line distinction is um, going to be difficult for the older Supreme Justices to to understand. I hope that uh, they do understand that. Um, of course, they're smart, very smart people, and they'll figure uh, their way through these arguments. But it's an interesting distinction. And and. I, as an Apple user, like that the app store is curated and contained and locked down. I don't want to worry about downloading apps that have malware or aren't properly developed. Would I like another place to go purchase apps? Perhaps. Mm. Um, But does that threaten the security of my operating system? Another thing I like over an Apple world. I don't have to think as much about security as I would if I were on Android. That's an interesting point. Do you think that a lot of consumers would fall into your camp and that they maybe think about the pros and cons before purchasing an iPhone? Or do you think a lot of people purchase the iPhone and later realize, oh, I can't have Flash on this iPhone or I can't purchase apps outside of the App Store? I think the Flash is over. So I think we're over yeah. that. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was a that was a long, slow death. Um, 
I don't think that users think too much about that. I think that um, uh, people just want their apps. They want them at a fair price. And the users I see now, the glue world, we are, our users are over 50 and they generally just want to buy an app and they want to find it easily and they want it at a fair price. Mm. Um, would they actually ex expand beyond an app store given the opportunity to save a couple of pennies or a dollar? I don't know. I think for my market, the glue market security is key. Ease of use is key. Uh, they don't want to be giving their credit card on a lot of different sites. They'd like that it's all contained within Apple's ecosystem. So that makes it easy. So I'm not sure that my market would veer towards App Store 2.0, whatever mm -hmm. that looks like. Apple's argument that it should be developers who bring this forward is an interesting one. Do you think there's been an impact, a negative impact to developers if it turns out that the App Store is in fact a monopoly? Well, we, we're sort of guessing that developers aren't going to bring a suit forward because yeah. they need the App Store to sell their products, right. maybe over the monopoly argument. Um, so I don't know if a developer would bring this forward. I I don't know. We will see. We will see. It is interesting, though, to sort of look at how the justices will determine this case, because we're dealing often with legislation and cases that were not technologically developed, right? We're applying sort of the definition of a marketplace or a consumer in a very different way. So I always find it interesting to sort of look at these. Look the at these law cases. that I think part of the law they're looking at is from 1977. So yikes. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Our final topic is a little bit closer to home. Uh, we've covered this on the show a little bit more in depth, but BC has gotten an A grade for its tech sector. But there's, of course, always room for improvement. And I wanted to ask you from someone who's within the tech sector, you deal with people using technology. What do you think? What would you grade our ecosystem? I'm going to stay with the A. Yeah. I love that. I, I am also speaking personally because I have a son at UBC in Sciences who's heading into the world of biotech in his future career. Um, and so I would love him to stay here <laughs> <laughs> right now for his master's or graduate degree. He's considering having to go back east because that's where all the big jobs are. That's where the tech industry is happening in his mind. Um, so if we whatever we can do to keep this momentum that the KPMG report uh, shows us so clearly. Um, I love the way Jill Tipping is getting everybody from BC Tech, getting everybody uh, understanding that this is perhaps the start of the curve for BC to really take off as a tech hub in Canada and globally. So I'm very excited to see what it is. And I'm going to stick with the A and uh, the A grade and do whatever I can to help people bring money into the sector, mm -hmm. keep students here, attract talent. Very exciting time to be on the beginning of that curve. It's interesting to get your son's perspective on this because one of the, the weaknesses highlighted in the report is our struggle to get talent, particular at the master's and PhD levels. And that could either be not having the programs, but it could also mean not attracting those people back to BC who have gone abroad for their study. What do you think we need more of? I think we need to give kids, uh, young people who are in high school and university an incentive to stay here. And what I'm understanding, this is a new process for me, understanding how these undergrads are looking at their master's and PhD programs. But um, they are looking for connections. They're looking for to take that second and third degree, perhaps in a place where they're going to be working. Mm -hmm. And so whatever we can do to give them reasons to stay, is that making the um, second and third degrees, the postgraduate degrees more affordable? 
could we do something like give them a reason to stay and get them to pay their degree off by remaining in BC for a decade after they get their doctorates or whatever? Um, attracting talent by letting talent know that our universities and our environment is ripe for commercialization of these incredible things they're developing. We mm -hmm. need to give them that understanding that we have people on the ground with the ability to commercialize research and development and the money to back that up. So a lot of pieces need to fall in place. And it's a long term view of how we grow this market with the talent. Um, but we need I would like to see us doing a really great job of helping kids understand that BC is a place that can be their future, despite the costs of living here. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got three levels of government to tackle that piece of the, the issue, exactly. the affordability one. Yeah. yeah. Which certainly does need to be addressed. But all in all, grade A, it's a pretty good. It's awesome. Trending yeah. up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's where we want to be. Linda, as always, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. That's Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. Subscribe to us on iTunes and on Stitcher. Share our show on social media. We appreciate it when you do. And you can listen to episodes and read more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.